This is a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the US-China Trade War podcast. I am Finbar Birmingham on the Political Economy Desk here at the South China Morning Post. We're back after a couple of weeks of staggered holidays across Hong Kong and mainland China. And I'm doubly glad to say that we're back in our Times Square studio after a sustained period of podcasting in exile. It feels over here a little bit like the calm before the storm. With the US election less than three weeks away, the news cycle on US-China affairs has slowed down slightly from the breakneck pace we were seeing just a few weeks ago. Will there be an October surprise? We'll see, but the two candidates have just finished their respective town halls as I speak, with very little mention of China in either of them. With the coronavirus pandemic ratcheting back up again stateside, there are clearly other priorities. In the first part of the show, we'll catch up on the week's news with our political economy editors John Carter and Joe Shin, discussing confirmation of US sanctions on the Hong Kong chief executive Carrie Lam and other officials, better than expected China trade data, and how the election is being viewed in China. In part two of the show, we're dipping into the archive to bring you some of the audio of an interview I did a couple of months ago with Yoo Myung-hee, the South Korean trade minister. Minister Yoo is one of the two remaining candidates to lead the World Trade Organization. Last week, they cut the field from five to two, meaning for the first time in its quarter century history, the WTO is going to have a female leader. In the final round of consultations, Minister Yu will face off against the former Nigerian finance minister Ngozi Okonja-Awela. And the good news is, we interviewed both of them. Both candidates were kind enough to join me on Zoom calls during their busy campaign period, and we're going to bring you the audio from those over the next few weeks. We'll start out with Minister Yu, who joined me at the end of August from her office in Seoul. More on this after we hear from our editors. We are back in the studio for the first time in a few months. Uh, social distancing restrictions have been gradually been removed here in Hong Kong. I'm joined by John Carter and Joe Shin um, in what has been another big week for China's trade economy. This week we had the monthly export-import data for September 2020 and it showed a record monthly total of imports for China. $203 billion of imports in the month of September was an all-time high. It was up 13.2% year-on-year with huge jumps in purchases of corn, soybeans and meat. But even more interesting than that was the technology side, with Huawei facing a September 14 cut-off point to buy chips from around the world that had US tech in them. There was a massive spending spree on integrated circuits and other high-tech goods. Um, Joshin, China has been for some time now trying to localize and uh, indigenize its its technology supply chain. What does this monthly data in which we saw a huge rise in tech inputs tell us about what China is trying to do with its tech economy? Thank you, Fingba. Yes, that's very interesting. I think China is really preparing for some uh, technology decoupling with the United States. Uh, so you can see, you know, from uh, Xi Jinping's uh, latest speech in Shenzhen, uh, self-reliance has become a, certainly become a keyword. And China is preparing that the U.S. will having more embargoes or restrictions on China's access to these uh, technology components that China cannot readily make. So uh, it is reasonable to understand that uh, China has been increased its uh, purchases of foreign technology. Uh, at the same time, I mean, the broader imports improvement should also be seen as a sign 
that Chinese economy is recovering uh, faster than the rest, rest of the world. And remember, China's uh, processing trade is very, very big. And we just sent some journalists to uh, Zhengzhou in Henan province, where the world's largest uh, iPhone factory is, uh, is based. And as you can see, you know, according to local people, the, this factory has never been so busy. So reasonably, you know, they need more components sourced from other parts of the country, from South Korea, from Taiwan, from Japan, and to assemble them together into iPhone 12 to be ready shipped to every corner of the world. So this kind of uh, uh, imports, in China's imports, if imports figures are strong, it doesn't only reflect that the domestic demand is uh, uh, recovering is improving, but also the whole value chain, the production has been uh, picking up paces. Mm. The other point would be as well, perhaps China has had its issues with food security this year, and it's also trying to meet the terms of the phase one trade deal. Um, as I mentioned, soybeans, corn, meat imports were, were all up massively in September, John. Um, this was the first time, first real strong import growth we, we've seen this year. What was your takeaway from the numbers? Well, as you point out, that uh, the uh, the uh, agriculture product imports are in line with the requirements of the Phase One trade deal, but they also are in line with the domestic needs. Uh, Northern China was hit by a number of typhoons in uh, late August and early September, and so much of the corn crop was ruined. And so, they uh, China. Um, is in need of replenishing its supplies of corn. And that was w one of the reasons for the large imports of, of corn from the United States. In addition, as we know, uh, China is still suffering from a pork crisis because of the uh, African swine fever epidemic that started almost two years ago. And uh, while the domestic pork supply is improving, it's not going to get back to normal until sometime next year. So there's a strong demand for imports of pork, a lot of that, again, comes from the United States and helps comply with the phase one trade deal. We saw um, one of the other key takeaways, for me at least, was that we're three weeks out from the U.S. election. Um, when Trump ran for election in 2016, he, he vowed to do away with the China's trade surplus over the U.S. He, he railed against the trade deficit. Um, but in September, it was 43.6% higher than it was in January 2017, which was when he was sworn into to office. Um, John, economists warned against trying to do away with the trade deficit because of the perhaps uh, structures of, of both the U.S. and, and Chinese economies. But, I mean, what, what, what can we see from the fact that it's it's bigger than it was when he came in, uh, and the fact that it's much bigger than it was this time last year as well. Well, first of all, you have to factor in the impact of the coronavirus uh, crisis. As Joe Shin pointed out, uh, China is the first major economy to come out of the uh, crisis uh, with positive growth, and the IMF this week uh, increased its forecast for Chinese growth this year, and, and, and it predicted that China would be the only G20 country to have positive growth this year. Um, so that has led to uh, part of that growth has come from China supplying the rest of the world with uh, uh, personal protection equipment because of the coronavirus crisis and um, lots of consumer electronics for the mm. work, work from home movement. So that has all, all helped to boost Chinese growth and increase a Chinese uh, trade surplus with the United States or from the U.S. point of view, the trade deficit with China. So there is a big coronavirus factor in the current data. But having said that, I think it's clear that 
um, the U.S. has still has a, if you will, a core trade deficit with China that isn't going away because of China, uh, Trump's trade war. And so you can argue that his trade strategy has not been the success that he hoped it would be, as you point out. The trade deficit today is much higher than it was when he first took office. And so in that respect, he has failed to deliver on a campaign promise from 2016. Yeah, I was, I was surprised to see one of Biden's key advisor, Jared Bernstein, wrote a piece in the Washington Post over the last couple of weeks, also saying that the trade deficit's a terrible thing that needs to be um, run down. Uh, surprising that he was maybe choosing the same hill to die on that Trump did. <laughs> well, I, I think that there's a general consensus that uh, the world, uh, and this is, I think, Europeans would agree with this point of view in other countries as well, depend too much on China for basic needs, particularly medical equipment and supplies that became obvious during the coronavirus mm. pandemic. And so there is a need to bring some of that production back home, and that would lead to a, a smaller trade shortfall with China. But that's going to take time. Mm. You ha it takes time to build up all of the manufacturing capabilities to make the personal protection equipment to make the precursor uh, components for uh, drugs and medicines that are mostly made in China. Mm. And so that may be what he's talking about. But again, as you say, um, the deficit it, it results from American demand for things that China makes. Yeah. And until you change that, um, and, and you're going to have a deficit. Yeah. And um, American wages and American manufacturing, the ma American manufacturing environment is not going to be able to compete with China anytime soon. No. And Joshin, like, was there any surprise or, I mean, during the pandemic, we saw um, China sort of go back to its age old model of exporting reasonably low end goods, um, you know, investment and infrastructure and so on. Um, do you feel like in, in, in China there's um, an acceptance that maybe this uh, role which it tried to it has been trying to distance itself from and reverting to a consumption based model is there acknowledgement that it has sort of gone back to that um, sort of trade and export led economy in order to uh, export its way out of the, the coronavirus uh, no on the contrary I think China has starting from this coronavirus the strategy, uh, strategy, new strategy is uh, the due circulation. So basically, the whole country is uh, putting more focus on domestic market instead of relying on exports. Of course, that said, doesn't mean China is giving up its uh, um, uh, exports for purpose. Mm. But uh, the strategic focus apparently has been shifted to domestic consumption. And that's why I think you can see that in China, you know, the Ministry of Commerce has launched a whole month uh, of consumption promotion. And even, even the... Uh, the level is still uh, below last year. It's the same period last year, but still it's, uh, it's recovery impressively. So uh, I think China will do more in this end of uh, boosting domestic consumption instead of relying on exports. As I said, we're about three weeks out from the election as we record here, and it's actually quite quiet. Um, you know, the US-China news has fallen away a little bit after a crazy, crazy few months. We may have an October surprise in store. Uh, we'll see about that. But Joshin, um, but going back to you on that, how has the election been covered in, in China? There's been a lot of debate about whether China prefers Biden or Trump, but has there been much about it at all in the Chinese media? Well, not at all. I think for China, it doesn't really matter. Uh, the yesterday's speech from uh, Xi, I really like the line. He uh, repeated the first part of the line many times. He said, we are uh, in... 
uh, undergoing changes that are unseen in, in a century. And then he also said, like, the coronavirus has significantly accelerated these changes, mm. which means for China, there are so many changing factors in the world. And the, the result of the presidential election in the United States is just one of these many changes. And also for China, it's very difficult to say which one is the less evil of the two, you mm. know. If uh, Trump wins uh, another four year, will he, be, will he be more friendly or less confrontational uh, against China? Or if Biden is necessarily better than uh, Trump, it's beyond China's uh, ability to tell. Hmm. And also, uh, you know, what China can do is just to prepare for, you know, whoever is in the position, China is kind of ready for these uh, confrontations, preparing for the worst. Basically, yeah. that's, a, that's a mood uh, in, in, in China now. But, so that's why, you know, they don't want to involve into too much into the presidential debates. The last thing Beijing would like to see is like, oh, you're preferring Trump or oh, you're preferring yeah. Biden. That would be a nightmare situation yeah. for Beijing. So, so, so the, but, the, but there's a blanket media blackout in China on the, on the presidential race. Is that right? No, no, no. It's not a blackout. Um, uh, they still cover some of the topics. Mm. But they do not uh, get China's position involved into this. Yeah. They do not like review like, oh, Trump is, uh, you know, he's getting coronavirus. His uh, probably probability of the winning president is uh, getting smaller. So this is good for China. These kind of messages are absent from okay. China's media. Okay, fair enough. John, are you surprised by the sort of lull that we've had? Is this the calm before the storm? Do you think? Well, I think part of that had to do with Trump's. Um, well, coronavirus uh, diagnosis, uh, when the, the total focus was, what was on him and what he was doing and what his health would be. And so there was less news about policy and his views about China. Now, both candidates are using China as a punching bag. In the, that is the tried and true campaign strategies, blame the foreigners. That's been true for <laughs> hundreds of years in the United States. Um but um, there has been very little substance, a lot of verbiage, but no substance, as you correctly pointed out. The potential for substance may come in the coming days. Uh, yesterday, the State Department delivered to Congress a report about um, the sanctions on the Hong Kong and Chinese officials with regard to the Hong Kong national security law. And the law allows for the sanctioning of banks who do mm. business with these officials. Mm -hmm. the, the State Department submission did not name any banks or suggest who might be sanctioned, uh, but that would be the next shoe to drop, and it's not clear whether that would drop before the election or after, but we will see. Yeah, and just to be clear, we, we did cover this before, in case listeners think we're just ignoring that story. This is something that was expected this week, yes. or at least uh, within 60 days of it, yeah. of it having been announced. And Joe Shin, are Chinese banks worried about that? Well, I think they are. They, um, I think one, uh, one uh, kind of commentary from a government advisor is that although the probability is very small for US to have a wholesale a sanction of China's financial system, you know, it's very possible for the U.S. to pick up a few Chinese banks. So the banks have to behave themselves, especially, you know, in terms to not given very easy excuses mm -hmm. for the United States to, to, to sanction. Yeah. We'll be watching closely for that one, John. Some big economic dates in the calendar next week. Tell us what's going on. 
Well, on Monday is the big news. We'll get uh, Chinese figures for third quarter uh, gross domestic products, what the growth will be. The Chinese economy contracted 6.8% in the first quarter, like most of the world, uh, but then rebounded 3.2% growth in the second. And now expectations are third quarter growth could be 5.5% or even more, close to the 6.1% growth rate for all of last year before the coronavirus. So Mm. again, proof that China is rebounding strongly. Uh, We will see not only the third quarter GDP figures, but uh, industrial production and retail sales figures for September about the momentum going forward in the economy. As you recall, uh, retail sales turned positive in August for the first time this year. We'll be looking to see if that momentum was extended in September, um, and that would imply consumer spending is rising, and that would be a very good sign for the Chinese economy. Mm. We'll hear more about that on the podcast next week. Joe Shin, John Carter, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Yu is South Korea's first female trade minister, has been working in the Korean government on trade policy for about 25 years. Having negotiated some high-profile trade deals with countries such as the US and China, she's been through a mini-trade war uh, with Japan and overseen multilateral talks for trade deals around Asia. She is seen as having a very strong CV. But this being 2020, there's plenty of politics involved. Theoretically, the next Director General needs backing of all 164 members. But in reality, there's usually a compromise candidate. Yu is challenged by the fraught geopolitical situation between Korea and some of the WTO's most powerful members, namely Japan and China. Korea is also a military ally of the US, further complicating her candidacy in the eyes of Beijing. And one technical point, a WTO Director General has four deputies, with many suggesting that if Minister Yu gets this job, China could lose its deputy to another region to balance the leadership team up a bit. That's not to rule her out. She's beaten off strong competition to make the final two and has serious pedigree. So enjoy this interview and we will see you on the other side. Minister, I'll ask you first um, about your own candidacy. Um, I mean, on paper, your CV is is up there with the best. Um, certainly your 25 years in, in trade, um, you've negotiated, been around the table. You've served as a minister and a deputy minister. You, you know the this inside out. Um, however, when we speak with um, those who follow these issues very closely, they worry that perhaps the candidacy may be threatened by political reasons. And I suppose this is the nature of global trade in 2020. Um, the, there are some s- suggestions that the South Korean alliance with the United States may be a disqualifying factor, Japan situation. There is the reports today that Korea may be discussing joining the Five Eyes Plus. And of course, there's the the absolutely um, technical point that if Korea and yourself becomes the director general, um, then China may lose its position as the deputy director general due to regional imbalances. So can you tell me from a personal perspective, how difficult is it to, as a candidate, to to, to really head off all of these political challenges when you're trying to run for a position like this? Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, uh, first of all, um, I believe every member shares the need to 
revitalize the WTO function because WTO is facing profound crisis. Now, even before the COVID-19, the world economy itself, the sluggish global world economy combined with weak demand and rising trade tensions and protectionism have been causing strains on global trade. And now we have COVID-19. So at this time, in these times of crisis, members are looking uh, for someone who can actually lead this organization and who can actually uh, take the issue of uh, reform in earnest and can actually deliver on that issue. So uh, in that regard, uh, whichever country they I have met over the last several uh, weeks, they share the uh, same need for uh, the WTO's uh, DG uh, who can actually deliver on uh, WTO reform and who can actually reinvent and revitalize the WTO. So in regard to specific uh, countries, uh, well, you mentioned um, China, US, but I would say that I don't know why you know I am considered as a um, close to uh, U.S. because you know, during my lifetime, you know, I have worked closely with both countries. Mm. I have concluded Korea-U.S. FTA amendment negotiation with the U.S. most recently as chief negotiator, but also I have finalized Korea-China FTA with China as chief negotiator. And I lived in the U.S. Uh, for four years, but I also lived in China for uh, three years. So for, during my lifetime, I have been closely really working with both countries and uh, built up really close working relationship with both countries. Mm. Uh, so, uh, so far, when, whenever I meet with uh, many members around the world, they, they also share the same view. Uh, we need someone who can actually maintain, enhance, and strengthen this, improve this global trading system yeah. in the WTO. So, yeah, and, I mean... Uh, in, Oh, pardon yes, me, Minister. I was just going to say, no, I don't think anybody doubts your personal credentials for the role. I think you have got the experience of dealing with both of these superpowers, but it's the, it's the, just the general political climate. Is that a challenge for a candidate from Korea today? Uh, well, um, so far, I think you know during my uh, throughout my meetings with all the ministers and also all the ambassadors, um, um, I feel that uh, members are all committed to saving this global trading system and uh, strengthening it. So um, I've been reaching out to all the members around the world, and um, I think you know in spite of all the um, geopolitical issues, uh, at the end of the day, I'm confident that um, members can select someone who can actually deliver on the. Reform. Sure. Do you get a sense that that experience that you just mentioned, your four years in America, your three years in China, is that something that stands to your benefit? Because a lot of people, when I speak to them in capitals around the world are looking for somebody who can mediate between the United States and China. No, nobody thinks the WTO can solve the US-China rivalry, but I think people are looking for some leadership from Geneva to help mediate this dispute. Do you believe that that is possible for the WTO to act in that role? Um, I believe revitalized, well-functioning WTO could provide a meaningful platform uh, for both 
China and the U.S. to have in-depth discussions and explore a way forward on trade-related issues. And well, so first of all, the starting point uh, would be to help them engage at the multilateral setting. And perhaps their trade tensions, uh, to some extent, uh, is uh, are due to the lack of a progress at the WTO. For the last 25 years, uh, WTO has not produced any multilateral trading agreements except for the trade facilitation agreement. Mm. And if WTO fails again to reinvent itself, maybe more members might be compared to de dealing with the disputes in their own ways outside of WTO, either mm. bilaterally or unilaterally. So the starting point would be to help them engage at the multilateral trading, uh, multilateral setting. And I believe um, I have worked closely with both of the countries and know or understand not only the two countries, but you know, countries, various countries at different levels of development. So I could understand their priorities, concerns, interests, and needs behind their positions. So I would work together with them to find a common ground for talks. And if we can focus on those common grounds and can develop them into agreements, and if we can reach, we can uh, have a uh, even modest but a successful outcome through those discussions and can actually faithfully implement them, they could build up good political momentum and generate more will to tackle harder issues down the road. Mm -hmm. So uh, I would provide a good offices of uh, director general and would serve as an informed and effective facilitator uh, between the two sides. And in that process, uh, I believe uh, my experience uh, would help me uh, play the role of uh, effective and uh, informed, trans, uh, informed facilitator. Sure. Uh, people, as I mentioned, um, they're looking for somebody with leadership credentials. Mm -hmm. I'm. A lot of people were impressed last year when South Korea forewent its um, special differential treatment at the WTO for developing countries. Um, this is a bone of contention that there are G20 members, there are rich nations, you know, I won't name names, but smaller nations who have very high GDP per capita, as well as G20 member nations who are still drawing on their special differential privileges at the WTO. What's your thoughts on that, Minister? You, you, Korea went for what decided to, to not to draw those last year. Do you think that this is an example that should be followed by fellow G20 members? Uh, well, um, I cannot name you know which countries should follow uh, this example or not because the WTO itself actually provides that in WTO textbook itself provides that we need to ensure that developing countries, especially least developed countries, to secure mm -hmm. their own share in global trade, uh, in the global. Uh, global trade commensurate with their needs and their level of economic development. So given that, we have to also look at the realities. This is the principle at the WTO, but the reality is that more than two-thirds of members of the WTO are declaring themselves as developing countries. But we have, of course, limited resources at the WTO. Mm -hmm. So if too many countries 
try to seek a special and differential treatment uh, as a developing countries, in their case, perhaps they might prevent us from providing necessary flexibility and much needed assistance to those countries most in need, such as least developed countries. Mm. So we should uh, think about this, actually how to operationalize this principle. And to do that, um, well, you might say the G20 country or which country, but uh, I would say that at this point of time, when members are so divergent, uh, have so divergent views on this issue and divisive on this issue, a more pragmatic way uh, might be realistic way forward. Mm. Uh, in other way, uh, in other uh, sense that countries take on responsibility commensurate with their economic weight. Mm-hmm. global economic weight, and also countries receive benefits based on their actual needs mm-hmm. uh, on a voluntary basis. So a voluntary basis is, the, I think, the key here. I mean, I think a lot of these countries may be expected to have some self-reflection, as Korea has done, and maybe think, as you say, the resources may, maybe need to be funneled towards the LDCs, the least developed countries. Is there a sense that other countries who are in a more privileged position need to step up to the plate and stand up and be counted? I would just not share um, Korea's experience. Uh, although you know it looked maybe easy to you, but still, actually, to reach that deci- to make that decision, we had very intensive consultations uh, with relevant ministries and also domestic stakeholders, because in every society, there are vulnerable sectors. And we have to listen to their voices to achieve inclusive development. So we had to go through very intensive internal consultations. But at the same time, we also understand to unlock progress at the WTO, all the ongoing and future negotiations, it's also important for countries to take more responsibility whenever they are ready and whenever they can. Uh, If not, if too many countries ask for flexibilities as developing countries, even if we agree on new rules, but all those flexibilities could be the majority of the, our obligation. Mm-hmm. So in, in that regard, uh, although it was a very difficult process, but we know that the world has changed. Global economy has changed and Korea has changed for the last 25 years. So countries need to take a more responsibility in steps with changing times and changing economic uh, realities. So I hope that uh, if I have the honor of uh, serving as the next DG, I would assist the members to have a very constructive, candid discussions on this issue because mm. this issue really requires other countries' uh, agreement on what kind of responsibility they would take. So I would assist them to have uh, constructive discussions in an open, transparent, and inclusive manner so that uh, they can make decisions on a voluntary basis. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we created a positive atmosphere at the WTO. Yeah. Does your experience in uh, negotiating domestically um, this decision that was made to uh, step away from the special differential treatments, does that make you aware of how painful 
substantial WTO reform will be to achieve whenever you need to have, uh, you know, consensus and so on. I mean, are you aware of how difficult it is going to be to revitalize and reform the WTO as you've vowed to do? Yeah. Through, throughout my experience in negotiations, yes, I understand, totally understand, uh, because you know, usually negotiation requires external and internal coordination. And to me, sometimes internal coordination was more difficult than that external coordination. Uh, for example, internal coordination, uh, I have had intensively, I have intensively talked with and worked with relevant ministries uh, because usually the negotiations require market access commitments and sometimes change of laws, regulations, and government policies. So throughout all my negotiations, especially I've uh, concluded many deals and all those deals uh, require certain changes in our policies, as well as certain changes in our market opening. So I have had consultations with first, uh, the relevant industries, uh, relevant ministries, and second, also domestic stakeholders. And those process have been very difficult as well. We also have vulnerable sectors and their voices need to be heard, as I said before. But I, I believe that during the process, I also have on the trust uh, from the domestic stakeholders as well as relevant ministries. That's how I could become the first female trade minister in the Korean government. And in the same sense, I can also understand how difficult it would be for other countries to go through the, uh, such a process. So could better understand all the political pressures and difficulties that other countries could face in pursuing certain changes in their uh, policies or the market access commitment. And this negotiation also require external coordination with other countries. I have experience in uh, negotiating and concluding deals with least developed countries uh, and also very advanced countries. And this whole, during this whole process, better understand their difficulties. But still, they shouldn't discourage us from reaching a meaningful consensus at the WTO. Mm -hmm. uh, at the WTO, uh, right now, this, uh, as I said before, the world economy is facing a profound crisis. But History has shown us that we have witnessed that the global crisis actually could be a moment of opportunity to bring global transformation in terms of the governance. Uh, that's uh, what we have had in times of crisis. Now, after World War II, the Bretton Woods Institute were created and after financial crisis, we launched G20. So this should be a moment of opportunity for reform, mm -hmm. improvement. And I know that it's very hard to achieve consensus among 164 members, but based on my experience, both internally, externally, dealing with various sectors and countries, I believe I, I could deliver on that uh, uh, issue as well. Sure. Um, 
Minister, in an, in an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal last week, which I'm sure you've read, um, the US Trade <laughs> Representative Robert Lighthizer laid out his vision for the reform of the World Trade Organization and of world trade in general. Um, he was quite scathing of um, what he called the land grab for, uh, sorry, the, and he wanted an end to the free trade agreement land grab. And he blamed uh, the focus on bilateral agreements as one of the the point, pain points for, for global trade. I mean, Korea is one of the most successful nations modernly for um, negotiating these things. 56, uh, I think, countries are covered, 78% of global GDP. What's your response to Ambassador Lighthizer's critique of uh, a world trade system, which is in modern days, perhaps dominated by bilateral agreements? Well, at the risk of stating the obvious, you know, I would start up uh, saying, by saying that multilateral forum is the best uh, to achieve trade liberalization. So that is the best uh, format. We all know that. But the issue is that at the WTO, we have not had any successful multilateral trade negotiations for the last 25 years, except for um, trade facilitation agreement. And the DDA was stored uh, for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. And Korea started to pursue our bilateral FTA or plurilateral FTA uh, policy uh, when DDA was stored. So we have always actively participated in multilateral trading system, various discussions and negotiations uh, at the WTO. And we are still doing that and we will continue to do that. But when the WTO couldn't agree on any multilateral trade agreements, well, um, this is a second best, not second best, but another way to complement trade liberalization uh, within the WTO. Mm. So for example, we lowered down our tariff and non-tariff barriers uh, through our FTAs. So basically increased trade liberalization with many countries. And in that way, when we perhaps next time have another multilateral allowance at the WTO, Korean consumers and companies and domestic stakeholders now they are more used to, they get used to this market opening, open markets. So it increased trade liberalization between Korea and many other countries, as you mentioned, uh, 56 countries. And second, also we introduced new rules, updated WTO text through our bilateral FTAs. And in some sense, that actually filled in the normative gap the WTO has. WTO doesn't have any e-commerce chapters, but these days e-commerce chapters are included in bilateral, a lot of bilateral or plurilateral FTAs. So this could be a, a later a reference point at the WTO when they actually engage in negotiations on those new emerging issues. And throughout my FTA experience, I always know the WTO text was always my reference point, but we tried to upgrade or modernize the text in steps with the current realities uh, throughout our bilateral FTA negotiations. So that experience would help me to revitalize negotiating function at the WTO. Yeah, this um, the, the DDA, as you mentioned, the Doha round stalled. Uh, it was put out of its misery a few years ago. 
<laughs> do we have to um, face a more realistic future? You know, as you mentioned, apart from one, there haven't really been any multilateral agreements over the last twenty-five years. Do we? Are you? Are your expectations measured as to whether it's possible to still achieve multilateral um, achievements at the WTO, or do you? Is it possible? Well, there is an ongoing one ongoing multilateral trade and negotiations, the fisheries subsistence mm. negotiations. So if we conclude this, this is going to be the second. So it's important uh, in two points. First, it contributes to sustainable development. But second, it also shows signals to the world that WTO is relevant and WTO is a uh, shows the WTO's credibility. So I hope that, uh, and we, we should conclude this multilateral, second multilateral uh, agreements between among the WTO members on the fisheries subsidies. And there are four joint statement initiatives, plurilateral negotiations uh, at the WTO currently going on. And uh, I hope that we could also achieve tangible outcomes from those plurilateral agreements as well, because plurilateral agreements, as I mentioned in my previous remarks on uh, FTA, is not the best option. Uh, multilateral format is the best option, uh, but when multilateral negotiations are moving too slowly or are not moving at all, uh, these plurilateral initiatives uh, could be a second best option to uh, contribute to the uh, revitalizing the multilateral trading system. So still there are some initiatives going on and if we can achieve good outcomes from those negotiations, they can uh, actually build up uh, the, we can also build up uh, from uh, there and can have a generate a political momentum to move on to harder negotiations and harder multilateral negotiations. And I hope that I could rebuild the trust at the WTO mm -hmm. by first you know, achieving uh, tangible outcomes from those ongoing negotiations. Thanks for listening to this week's US-China Trade War podcast. I've been Finbar Birmingham on the Political Economy Desk at the South China Morning Post. Keep up to date on all things WTO, trade war, US-China affairs, and of course, China's role in the US election at scmp.com. You can follow our team on Twitter at SCMP Economy. Follow myself at F Birmingham. That's Birmingham spelt with a B-E-R, not like the city. We will be back, same place, same time next week. Please, until then, keep safe, wash your hands, keep your distance, and wear your mask. All the best. For more podcasts from the South China Morning Post, head to scmp.com, where you can hear more about technology, trade, culture, and society.